Production. Recorded live. Hello and welcome to Christagenia Saturdays. This is William Fink and this is Saturday, February 18th, 2012. Tonight I thought I'd cover one of my more um, didactic papers. I, I hope it isn't too dry. It was actually written some years ago for um, Clifton Emmerheiser's Watchman's Teaching Ministries. I wrote it about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I guess. I don't remember. I, I have all this written down somewhere, right? I really do, but um, it, it's not exactly handy. I have thousands of pages of material that I haven't even had the chance to get to in three years. What would your store away? This is the... Um, the seed of inheritance. I, I wrote this this paper to define that word seed as it appears in the scripture from the um, the, the original documents and, and from the lexicons themselves. And, and there are some surprising things in some of the um, Bible commentaries concerning this word, and, and we'll see some of that tonight. I, I just hope it's not too dry because it, it's a little academic. I'll, I'll try to um, present it as well as I can. The seed of inheritance. This is part one. Many um, Christian, or rather mainstream, so-called Christian commentators and theologians look at the seed of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, and they claim that it intends to identify Yahshua Christ alone. They then point to the usual interpretations, and they're not necessarily right either, of Genesis 4.25 and Galatians 3.16 in order to support these claims. I'll quote Genesis 4.25. We'll discuss Genesis 3, 6, Galatians 3.16 at length later. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, she said, has appointed me another seed Another seed, those two words are important, instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. The commentators do not consider that Genesis 4.25 is merely an expression of hope in the continuance of the line, and that the fulfillment of the mercy of God towards Adam and Eve is reflected in the promise found in the birth of Seth. And therefore we read in Genesis 5.4, And the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And we go on also to see, to read about Seth's progeny. And Adam's other sons and daughters aren't really followed. Seth is now the oldest son, and the line is followed down through him. These claims which are made by these many lexicographers such as Thayer and Vine, supporting this departure from the common interpretation and the meaning of the collective noun. These claims have caused them to do that. But not all lexicographers do so. Those who do confuse lexicology with a certain theology, universalist, thereby become complicit in a conspiracy to pervert the word of God, 
which I hope to make manifest here. In other words, they form their theology and then they go back and attempt to define the language. It should be the other way around. We must understand the language first, read what it says, and then form our theology. That's the healthy way to, of, of scriptural exegesis. That's the healthy way to interpret scripture. Except, except for one occasion in Joel chapter 1, verse 17, with a word found at Strong's number 6507 is translated seed, and grain would have been better. The Hebrew word, except for that one occasion, the Hebrew word for seed in the Old Testament is always the word zerah. It's Strong's number 2233, or its Chaldean counterpart, 2234. Strong's defines zerah this way, and I quote, seed, figuratively, fruit, plant, sowing time, posterity. According to Jesenius, the famous Hebrew lexicographer, right? According to Jesenius and others, the Hebrew noun zerah only appears in the plural in 1 Samuel 8.15. And there, multiple varieties of seed are referenced. I will quote 1 Samuel 8.15, and he will take the tenth of your seed which means all of the various seeds, because the word is plural. All of your crops is what it means, the plural for seed indicating each of the crops which you grow. This is talking about the king who's going to tax you. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. So that's the only place in, in the Old Testament, in the canonical books of the Old Testament, where the word seed appears in Hebrew in its plural form. Everywhere else, it's singular. Everywhere else, the Hebrew word is singular. Such is also true that multiple varieties are intended, where the primary Greek word for seed, sperma, appears in the plural in the New Testament. And it only does that on a few occasions, in Matthew 13.32 and Mark 4.31, where in both places the mustard seed is called the least of all the seeds. Seed appears in the plural, but it means a, a plural of different varieties, not a plural of one variety. In 1 Corinthians 15.38, where Paul compares different varieties of seed, and in Galatians 3.16, where we, which we will discuss later on. So wherever the word for seed is used in the plural, it is only plural where multiple varieties, multiple types of seed are what is being referred to. Since it would be difficult in this short format to address all of the issues raised in the definitions of zerah, the Hebrew word for seed, by the various lexicographers, or in Thayer's definition of sperma, which is the Greek word for seed, and his comments on the matter, I will only here address those comments by these lexicographers, which most concern the matters at hand, those pertaining directly to 
Genesis 3.15 and Galatians 3.16. In Gesenius' definitions of Zerah, he writes, and I quote, offspring, progeny, descendants. And he lists some scriptures. And among the scriptures he lists, appearing first in the list is Genesis 3.15. Jusenius writes, also of one son when and only one, the passage, therefore, Genesis 3.15, and just, this is Jusenius' words, the passage, therefore, Genesis 3.15, is not to be thus explained, as is done by polemic theologians. Genesis 4.25. So here, Jusenius explains that the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15 is not a single son only. He explicitly states that it's not a single son only, but rather it is offspring, progeny, or descendants, plural, as it plainly means everywhere else that the word refers to people in the Bible. Jesenius also stated that theologians who think that it refers to only one offspring, only Christ himself, which is what the mainstream churches are teaching for the last 150 years, Jesenius calls those theologians in his time who thought that, he calls them polemic, meaning that they are taking the word contrary to its meaning and making a dispute over it. Surely, somehow, today, these polemic, in Jesenius' words, theologians, are well represented. They are well overrepresented. And we, who would agree with Jesenius, we are accused of polemicism. They tell us that we're the ones that, that are twisting the word. Jesenius, therefore, knew, and he asserted in his definition that Genesis 3.15 was a reference to two lines of descendants. Jesenius' more recent editors defy his remarks. I'm talking about recent publications of Jesenius' famous Hebrew lexicon, where men have added to Jesenius' words. They defy his remarks by interpolating the following comment into his definition of the word Zerah. And I quote, the remark upon Genesis 3.15, they're talking about what Jesenius said about that, that it means um, offspring, offspring, progeny, or descendants, and not a single descendant, which is the teaching of modern churchianity. The remark upon Genesis 3.15 is intended apparently to contradict its application to the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemption, as if he could not be the seed of the woman. In reply, it will here suffice to remark that in the very passage cited immediately after Genesis 4.25, it is clear that Zerah is used of one son, namely Seth, when he was not an only one because Cain was yet alive. And further, this seed of the woman was to bruise the head of the tempter, thy head, 
which can in no sense apply to any but Christ individually, who became incarnate, that by means of death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Wow, I've never seen more lies in one comment in any lexicon. After this inserted remark by the editors, we have the balance of Justinius's definition of the word seed in Hebrew, the word zerah, where he says stock, race, family, a race of men. That's what a zerah is. That's what a seed is. Where it should not be forgotten that these definitions are meant by Jesenius to define the use of the word as it appears in the singular and not in the plural, because in the plural, multiple varieties of seed is what is being referred to. Now, note that the way the editors accused Jesenius's remarks, the way that the editors accused Jesenius's remarks of somehow contradicting its, and I quote, application to Jesus Christ and his redemption. As if Jesenius was some sort of heretic. That is an emotional appeal. It's meant to trigger an emotion in you when they make that statement. It triggers an emotion in mainstream Christians that Jesenius is some sort of heretic. It's not at all based upon facts. Jesenius was properly applying grammar first and then interpreting the result. What Jesenius did has nothing at all to do with Christ and redemption. And Jesenius is not denying that aspect of Christianity. Rather, the editors are trying to force us through an emotional appeal to interpret Genesis 3.15 as if it applies to Christ alone. That is not proper Greek or Hebrew exegesis. The editors also take advantage of the use of the word another, as it appears and it was used by the King James translators in Genesis 4.25. And it is not so clear as they think that seed in this passage is used of only one son, and I'll discuss that shortly. Rather, it is used of the promise of the continuance of the race, which that one son represents, and that will be proven. Now, I must concede that in some schools of thought, later, much later, in the intertestamental period, 1,200 years after Moses wrote, that some writers did write seeds in the plural, whether of Zerah or later of the Greek sperma, signifying more than one person of apparently the same lineage. This is explained by R.L. Harris, and I will quote from it further on in his presentation at length, in his theological wordbook of the Old Testament. And Sayer, also, Sayer, Sayer in his lexicon also cites one Greek example of this at 4 Maccabees 18.1. Yet this is not ever used in the canonical books of the Old Testament or the New Testament, as shall be demonstrated later in Galatians 3.16, to the contrary claims of the lexicographers and commentators who, who, who are writing from a, a mainstream Judeo-Christian interpretation and, and, and position. 
This is also contrary to the regular Hebrew and Greek usage. It is only a very late development in the Greek which was used in Palestine. And it doesn't belong, and it doesn't exist in our regular Old Testament or New Testament scriptures. To further address the editor's remarks on Jesenius' definition of seed, first I must state that I am not even in complete agreement with Jesenius concerning Genesis 4.25. For the word in Genesis 4.25 that the King James translators rendered another, that word is the Hebrew word aker. It's Strong's number 312. And Strong's defines it, and I quote, properly hinder, meaning beyond, generally next, other, etc. And so, although the King James translators translated it another at times, at various times in the King James translation, it is not necessarily so. Genesis 4.25 may be read in part, for Yahweh has appointed to me, meaning to Eve, other seed instead of Abel. That reading, just as legitimate from the Hebrew as another seed, preserves the collective sense of the word seed. Seth's birth assuring the promise of descendants that would carry on the Adamic line. Seth being the next born after Abel. Adam had sons and daughters after Seth, but with the birth of Seth, we have the hope of the continuance of the race after the expulsion from the garden and the destruction of Abel. That is what that line intends. The word another, as it's translated into King James, and people taking it for granted that that's what it means, is really a trap. The word other is just as legitimate a translation and more readily implies a collection which agrees with the common use of the noun for seed. So I would translate Genesis 4.25, for Yahweh has appointed me other seed instead of Abel. And it's just as proper Hebrew. It cannot be criticized because it's just as proper as the King James translation. And it's better in context. Furthermore, part of Hebrews 2.14 was quoted by Jesenius' editors to support their position that Genesis 3.15 has to, the seed of the woman has to be only Christ. They actually were brazen enough to, to quote Hebrews 2.14, and maybe it would be better, in order to better comprehend the seed of the woman, maybe they should have read a little more of Paul's epistles to the Hebrews. Epistle to the Hebrews, I'm sorry. Or perhaps they should have at least started from Hebrews 2.11, which I will quote here. Paul says, For both he sanctifying... He doing the sanctifying, which is Christ. And those being sanctified are all sprung from one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will announce your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And again, 
I will be confident in him. And again, behold, I and the children which Yahweh has given me. Therefore, since the children have taken part in flesh and blood, he also in like manner took part in the same. That through death, he would annul him having the power of death. That is the false accuser. It is incredibly dishonest that they would try to use Hebrews 2.14 alone to prove their point when the entire passage proves just the opposite. It's talking about an entire group who are the, the, the heirs to the covenant, who are the recipients to these, to these promises, who all came from one, from that one seed of the woman. The origin of these children, which illuminates the truth of the matter of the births of Cain, Abel, and Seth, which is told in Genesis, is expounded in the parable of the wheat and the tares found in Matthew chapter 13. At Matthew 13:37, our Redeemer is quoted, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. He means himself. Yahweh and Yahshua Christ are one, as Paul says in Colossians 2:9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the founder and the creator of the Adamic race, and therefore he is the root of Jesse, Isaiah 11.10. He is the root and the offspring of David, Revelation 22.16. The only way he could be the root and the offspring of David is to be Yahweh God and Yahshua Christ. At the same time, good seed continued to be sown every time an Adamic child is born. He then says, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, Matthew 13, 38, and 39. So it is evident that the enemy who came and sowed tares among the wheat is the devil, the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. When else may all this have happened? But with the serpent, Adam and Eve, at the beginning of the age, as detailed in Genesis chapter 3. Although Genesis chapter 3 is shrouded in symbolism. Now as an aside, I don't believe that the serpent was a supernatural demon that, that, that follows men around the earth and, and, um, <laughs> and, and harasses and taunts and tempts them, right? The serpent to me is representative of that entire race that left their first estate. The tree of knowledge of good and evil that was already in the garden, Yahweh didn't put it there, it was just there. That's the race that was here before the people, the children of Adam, that rebelled from God and went off into perdition. They tempted, or one of them tempted, our first parents. And is called the serpent, and is the father of Cain in Genesis. It's, it, it's, um, there are many, many scriptures that have to be understood in your proper light to understand this. So we have a race of, of men, and, and probably women too, of course, who, who were um, 
fallen from God, who rebelled from God, who mixed their race with every beast, as the books of Enoch say, with every kind of beast, and, and, and wicked spirits come from them. It doesn't say that they come from wicked spirits. It says that wicked spirits come from them. Wicked spirits come from the bastard people that the angels that left their first estate are responsible for. So, so a lot of Christians have that backwards. Wicked spirits come from people of mixed race, and the first rebellion against God was race mixing. And the fall of our race in the garden was due to race mixing. And that's the way I see Satan. And it can be established in scripture and in archaeology and anthropology. The children of the kingdom aren't, as so many suppose, some future people who may decide to be Christians. Rather, they are the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They are the Adamic race and the Israelites chosen out of that Adamic race to be his people to carry on his will in the world. Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 tells us that the new covenant is with these people and these people alone. And Paul quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 in Hebrews chapter 8. Paul explains in Hebrews 2, 14 that they have already taken part in flesh and blood and continue to do so. Later, Paul makes an obvious allusion to Genesis 3.15. When Paul tells the Romans that there should be no doubt, and, and there should be no doubt that Paul is addressing Romans, which is evident throughout the, the epistle to the Romans, he's not addressing Jews in Rome. He's addressing Romans. That's fully proven in Romans chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 11. Paul tells them, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, in Romans 16.20. From a study of history, it is revealed that the Romans are descended from Darda, the grandson of Zara, the son of Judah, who having founded Troy from him, the Trojans, were called Dardans. They migrated to Italy after the fall of Troy. These stories are very common throughout the classical literature. But the Jews of 70 AD in Jerusalem were Edomites. Edomites and other assorted Canaanites for the most part. The true Israelites of Judea, my sheep hear my voice, having heeded eventually the warnings of Yahshua Christ recorded in Luke chapter 21, verses 22-24, and most of them fled. We find remaining mostly, not all, but mostly, only those imposters described at Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. Those who claim to be Judah, but are not. They were the chief rebels in Jerusalem. Paul must have realized that the Romans were the people of the prince. Messiah the prince prophesied by Daniel to destroy Jerusalem after the passion. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And so, in a single brief statement, a very brief statement, in Romans 16.20, Paul identifies for us both the seed of the woman, which the Romans were a part of, and the seed of the serpent, 
which the Edomites were a part of. Paul had already explained to us the Edomite presence in Judea and its consequences in Romans chapters 9 and 10, and reinforcing his statement at Romans 16.20 concerning the crushing of the adversary. We find his writing to the Thessalonians of those same people in Jerusalem and looking forward to the city's impending doom at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 14 to 16, Paul writes, but the wrath has come upon them at last. If the Romans were to engage in the crushing of Satan, the adversary, that's what the term means in Hebrew. Satan doesn't mean a little demon lurking around in the, in, in the dark trying to get you. Satan simply means the adversary. Those who have rebelled from God, those who followed the way of Cain, those who mixed their race, because the first law of God is kind after kind. So they will permanently be the Satan, the adversary, as the term means in Hebrew. Surely they must represent. If the Romans were to engage in the crushing of Satan, they must represent the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15. That's what Paul is telling them in Romans 16.20. Christ is the head of that seed, but he alone is not the seed. Otherwise, if he alone were the seed, he wouldn't have needed to give us his word. While far from perfect, the much more modern, compared to Jesenius, which is several hundred years old now, the much more modern lexicographer, R.L. Harris, does a better job with the seed of Genesis 3.15 than Jesenius's editors did. Harris says this, Zerah, sowing, seed, offspring. The noun is used 224 times. Its usages, says Harris, fall into four basic semantic categories. The time of sowing or seed time. The seed is that which is scattered or is a product of that which is sown. The seed as semen. And four, the seed, capitalized, as the offspring in the promised line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or in other groups separate from this people of promise. Surely, I would include the serpent's children among those other groups of Harris's number four, as also the other non-Adamic races should be included, i.e. Jeremiah 31.27, where it says, the seed of beast, that is one type of seed. Neither should I find groups three and four as explained here to be separable at all. For a man's seed, his sperma, his semen, is only found in his loins, or in the loins of his progeny. That's what semen is. Although women technically also have seed because they supply in their ova a matching pair of 23 chromosomes to the 23 chromosomes of the male sperm at conception. So women do technically have seed. It's just not seen that way socially. Harris proceeds... The most important theological usage is found in the fourth category, commencing with Genesis 3.15. 
The word seed is regularly used as a collective noun in the singular, never plural. In other words, seed means many people of one type or many animals if it's applied to animals of one type or fruits and vegetables if it's applied to fruits and vegetables of one type. The word is used in the singular and never in the plural to denote many seeds of one type. It's used as a collective noun in the singular, never plural, as Harris stated. Harris goes on to say, this technical term is an important aspect of the promise doctrine. For Hebrew, meaning the Hebrew language, never uses the plural of this root to refer to posterity or offspring. The Aramaic Targums pluralize the term occasionally, e.g. the Targum of Genesis 4.10. But the Aramaic also limits itself to the singular in passages dealing with the promised line. Thus the word designates the whole line of descendants as a unit. Yet it is deliberately flexible enough to denote either one person who epitomizes the whole group, i.e. the main, the man of promise and ultimately Christ, or the many persons in that whole line, and here's where Harris goes off the trail right here, in that whole line of natural and or spiritual descendants. Now, Harris did rather well here because Genesis 3.15 certainly portends the whole line of Seth's descendants as a unit, which I will discuss again later when I discuss Galatians 3.16. And the Messiah himself, which it does, it's, it's a reference to him, but it still portends, that does not take away from the fact that it portends the whole line of Seth's descendants as a unit. And then Harris goes off the trail when he makes mention of spiritual descendants, of which there is no such thing. If descendants could be spiritual, then Yahweh certainly may have allowed Eleazar of Damascus to be Abraham's heir, Genesis 15, 2 and 4 and not insist that an heir be born of Abraham's loins. And furthermore, only by Sarah, a Semite kinswoman of Abraham, and not by Hagar, the Egyptian slave. Neither would it have mattered to Isaac and Rebekah who Jacob or Esau took for wives, as we see that it certainly did in Genesis chapters 26 and 27. Again, Harris continues, and I quote, Precisely so, in Genesis 3.15, one such seed is the line of the woman, as contrasted with the opposing seed, and here Harris goes off the trail again, as is contrasted with the opposing seed, which is the line of Satan's followers. He understood the physical genetic line of the woman being the seed of the woman, and he goes off the rails when he talks about Satan's followers. And then surprisingly, the text announces a male descendant who will ultimately win a crushing victory over Satan himself. Harris is again referring to Christ. Harris goes on, This promise to Eve was enlarged and made more specific in the Abrahamic covenant, 
So he sees all of this as the physical line of the woman. God would grant the land and a numerous offspring through Abraham's son Isaac and his offspring. And he references Genesis 12, 13, 15, and on and on through all the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he says, this whole line builds and the promise continues in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Now again, Harris did quite well in his commentary with the seed of the woman. Yet he twists the seed of the serpent into merely the line of Satan's followers. Yet, you know, Judeo-Christianity is sometimes an amazing thing because a good scholar can often see through the propaganda and, and print something true, and we see that with Harris here, and still the Judeo-Christian doctrines come along and, and cloud his vision, and he screws something else up. I don't know how he gets Satan's followers. I guess he couldn't imagine that Satan actually had children. Huh? Well, well, Satan does have children, and, and today they're, they're dwelling in New York and Tel Aviv primarily. There may be followers of Satan, and surely there are plenty. And there are many from all lines. Yet there can only be a line of Satan's descendants in the seed of the serpent, and there are indeed. The parable of the wheat and the tares cited above, among many other things, ensures us that this interpretation is the correct one. Notwithstanding Genesis 4.1, which is a demonstrably corrupted portion of Scripture, the seed of the serpent can be traced from Cain down through Canaan and Esau, and into Judea and Jerusalem. Of course, it was in many other places by this time also. Well before the time of Christ. For this reason did Joshua Christ tell the Jews, and this is what he told them, the people of Judea at his time, these Edomite high priests and Pharisees, he told them that they were of the race, the word Gedea means race, of those who killed the prophets, and this is important, from Abel to Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's father. Only Cain killed Abel, yet Christ said that their race was resp responsible for the blood of Abel. Christ, if he doesn't mean to tell them that they descended from Cain, then Christ is making a false accus accusation. That's a false accusation unless they are of the race of Cain. The only way that Christ could be true is if those Pharisees were of the race of Cain. Only Herod the Edomite tried to kill the infant Christ, as we know in history, as we know right in our gospel. And he is described as a manifestation of the great dragon, that old serpent called the devil and Satan in Revelation 12, verses 1 through 9. The Edomite Jews were later told by an adult Christ that they were of their father the devil and not of his father Yahweh in John 8.44. I'll revisit this topic later when discussing Galatians 3.16. W.E. Vine, in his complete expository dictionary of the Old and New Testament words, under sperma, the Greek word for seed, makes the sound statement, and I quote, while the plural form seeds, neither in Hebrew nor Greek, would have been natural any more than in English, and he says, it is not so used in scripture of human offspring, 
Its plural occurrence is in 1 Samuel 8, 15 of crops. Then W.E. Vine goes on to make the totally absurd assertion where he says, Yet if the divine intention had been to refer to Abraham's natural descendants, another word could have been chosen in the plural, such as children. And here he says this of the promises to Abraham. At Genesis 3.15, I'm sorry, 13.15, and Genesis 17.7 and 8. So he's denying that the promise to Abraham is of his literal physical descendants. Just, I'm sorry, W.E. Vine goes on to say, I'm sorry, this is, this is my interpretation. If the text said children rather than seed, neither would, the, neither would W.E. Vine interpret that to mean Abraham's natural descendants. He'd twist it the other way around. The church can't understand that the promises are to Abraham's natural descendants because they don't know who the hell they are except for the Jews. And most of these commentators and lexicographers follow them. If the text said children, as W.E. Vine thinks that it should if natural descendants were, were, were referenced, then W.E. Vine would have twisted it the other way. Just as lexicographers, and we see it all the time, manage to twist the words son, daughter, and brethren into some spiritual abstraction throughout their New Testament lexicons and commentaries. For children, it may be perceived, can be adopted. Children can be adopted. Remember Yahweh's rejection of Eleazar as, this, as the heir. Yahweh rejected Eleazar. Eleazar was Abraham's servant and of the house of his kindred in the city of Haran. Seed cannot be adopted. W.E. Vine is perverting the truth. Seed can't be adopted. Seed comes out of your loins. It can't come from anywhere else. Abraham was told by Yahweh, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, Genesis 17, 6. Jacob was told, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins, Genesis 35, 11. The words of these covenants leave them to no one but natural descendants. Vine, blind as to whom and where the actual physical Israelites were, looks at the Jews and sees not any of these promises fulfilled in them. And so he is forced to pervert the meanings of the words themselves or to deny the scripture because he doesn't understand its fulfillment. We in Christian identity are the only Christians who do not pervert the meanings of these words. We understand these words for what they naturally mean. We believe them. We can explain them. We can prove that they came true. Vine finishes his diatribe by saying, and I quote, All such words were, however, set aside, meaning son, daughter, children, 
seed being selected as one that could be used in the singular with the purpose of showing that the seed was Messiah. The gospel according to vine. Disregard your Bibles because nothing else matters. Words suddenly don't mean what they mean. Yahweh and Yahshua Christ being one, evidently, Yahweh only makes promises to himself, according to Vine. Yet from Luke, we know better. Luke said, and I quote, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever, his offspring, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began that we, his seed, should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, his seed, and to remember his holy covenant, which he made with his seed. Luke chapter 1. For which reason Paul, who surely knew whom the lost, so-called lost tribes of Israel were, long after the Passion, Paul assured the Galatians, who descended from those lost tribes. And Paul said, And we, brethren, down through Isaac, are children of the promise. Galatians 4.28 While they are not perfect, fortunately, Jesenius and Harris do not agree with W.E. Vine on the subject of seed. Now I will present part two of this presentation, and I will discuss some of Thayer's comments at Sperma, along with Galatians 3.16. Hopefully by now it has become manifest, if it was not already, that the woman's seed of Genesis 3.15 is, as Jersenius and as R.L. Harris admit in their lexicons and commentaries, the entire line of Adam's descendants through Seth, the entire chosen line that's followed in the Bible, or the seed of the woman, and all of their relatives and kin, of course. While it's not a direct topic of discussion here, it is a topic difficult to avoid, and so it may also have become manifest that the serpent's seed is the entire line of descendants through Cain. Yet, that is a topic which we have discussed at length on many other occasions. Other opportunities to do so are certainly forthcoming. The endeavor here is to demonstrate that while Thayer and other lexicographers, commentators, and theologians use the text found at Galatians 3.16 to support their errant viewpoint that the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15 portends Yahshua Christ alone, such is not truly what Paul is saying in Galatians at all. Many of the more rash Christian identity pastors, in a quandary because of this situation and several others like it, unfortunately reject Paul rather than take the time to understand what is being said, examining the Greek and reading things carefully and in context. It is much easier to jump to false conclusions than to engage in a difficult study. Such is why Peter wrote, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, is written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or wrestle with and pervert, 
as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. 2 Peter chapter 3. At Galatians 3.16, Paul contrasts the word spermati, which is the dative singular of sperma, with spermasin, the dative plural. These differences cannot be detected with a concordance, such as Strong's. They can't be because Strong's doesn't give you the parts of speech. One needs a Greek text to see the actual forms of each word and a grammar book to decipher those forms. Thayer says this of sperma, properly the seed, i.e., the grain or kernel which contains within itself the germ of the future plant. The singular is used collectively of the grains or kernel sown, the semen virile of a man. Thayer goes on, by metonymy, this pro- the product of the semen, seed, children, offspring, progeny, family, race, or posterity. And so it should be evident that the Greek use of sperma and the New Testament use of the word is quite the same as the way that zerah was used in the Old Testament Hebrew, as I discussed earlier. It refers to the collection of the single type. Yet further on in his definition, Thayer goes off the cliff. Thayer goes on to state in a very treacherous manner, and this is incredibly treacherous, by a rabbinical method of interpreting. He's accusing Paul of using rabbinical methods of interpretation here. This is horrendous. By a rabbinical method of interpreting opposed to the usage of the Hebrew, which signifies the offspring, whether consisting of one person or many, Paul lays such stress on the singular number in Genesis 13 and 17 as to make it denote but one of Abraham's posterity, and that the Messiah. Galatians 3.16, also 19, and yet that the way in which Paul presses the singular here is not utterly at variance with the genius of the Jewish Greek language is evident from 4 Maccabees 18 and 1 where the plural is used of many descendants. There's almost as many lies in those six lines as there were in the, defin- in, in the interpolation given by the editors of Jesenius concerning Genesis 3.15. And so Thayer, like Vine, by a rabbinical method of interpreting, twists the writings of Paul to remove all of the promises of Yahweh from Abraham's natural descendants, distorting Paul's use of the language. He calls it genius. That takes balls, because he's lying and attributing those lies to Paul, and Paul never made them. That's incredible. That's incredibly blatant treachery. It is Thayer and mainstream churchianity which uses this rabbinical method of interpreting and not Paul. They are only using Paul for their excuse. It shall be shown here that Paul's use of seed in the plural at Galatians 3.16 cannot be equated to the way in which the word was used in 4 Maccabees 18, 
or the way the rabbis began to use the word, surely in an effort to cause confusion as the rest of their Talmudic writings do. For the moment, it shall only be stated that most of Paul's quotes of the Old Testament are nearly entirely verbatim from the Greek Septuagint and not from the rabbis or the Aramaic Targums. Like the Hebrew, the word seed in the Septuagint appears in the singular everywhere except for a few exceptions. First, it is plural in 1 Samuel 8.15, as it is in the Hebrew. The exceptions are found in Psalm 125, Isaiah 61, and twice in Daniel, 1.2 and 11.31. And upon inspection, all of these in the Septuagint are harmless to either side of the debate here. Paul wrote at Hebrews 8.6, speaking of Yahshua Christ, but now he has obtained a more distinguished office. And by so much better a covenant is he a mediator, by which better promises are ordained by law. And in Hebrews 9.15, Paul says, And for this reason he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that from death resulting in redemption of the transgressions against the first covenant, those having been invited, those having been called, would receive the promise of the internal inheritance. That's an incredible line. Because that tells us verbatim that the new covenant is only for the people that transgress the old. Period. That's what they have a problem with with Paul. So they have to twist every word the man said. So that his, his sayings don't say what they mean. They have to pervert the whole thing. Where Paul calls Joshua Christ the mediator of the covenant and the promises, he also shows that Christ alone is not the intended recipient of those promises. What mediator is also the sole party to that which is being mediated? That makes no sense at all, and it's never what Paul intended. Now, while it is true that Yahshua Christ is the heir of all things, because he created all things, because he's Yahweh himself, Hebrews 1, 2, this does not separate the children of Israel from the promise of the inheritance. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ's, then of the offspring of Abraham, you are heirs according to the promise. You need to meet both qualifications. As Thayer and Vine both attempted to do. For the promise is to be certain to all the offspring, Paul said, Romans 4.16. That can't mean just one single seed. It's certain to all the offspring of Abraham down through Jacob, Israel. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 4.16. He sure as hell isn't contradicting himself in Galatians. Yet the children of Israel, as Paul also tells us, cannot be separated from Yahshua Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, and all others are excluded. Paul tells us in Romans 9, Paul tells us in Hebrews 8, that these covenants are for Israel according to the flesh. To understand the use of seed in Galatians 3.16, one must only look to Paul's other writings concerning the offspring of Abraham and to Old Testament history. Paul tells us in Romans 9.6 that not all of the people in Israel are Israelites. Paul then goes on to compare Jacob and Esau. Paul then quotes Malachi chapter 1 in that comparison where Yahweh says that he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. 
Paul then compares vessels of mercy, Israel, to the vessels of destruction, the Edomites, a metaphor which Paul must have drawn from Jeremiah chapters 18 and 19, the potter making two vessels from one lump of clay. From history and from Scripture, we know that by the time of Christ, the Edomites and the other Canaanites in Palestine had been wholly absorbed among the population and into Judean life and religion. It's also described in detail by Josephus. So that is the reason for Paul's discourse in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, where he, where he compares Jacob and Esau. At Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, Paul contrasts the children of Isaac with the children of Ishmael. And then he explains that the Ishmaelites shall not be eligible for any share in the inheritance. At Galatians 3.14, the nations which Paul mentions could only be those nations which descended from Jacob, as we saw the promise to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, that his seed, his offspring, would be many nations, and kings would come out of his loins. The kings of those nations, evidently being the same stock as the nations themselves and as we've seen in history. Which is also evident in many other places in Scripture. Before proceeding, there's so much that has to be understood in order to, to, to grasp this entire picture. The word Christos, usually translated Christ in New Testament translations, which also appears in Galatians 3.16, must be examined since it is surely a component of the debate here. It must be understood. The word Christos is basically a Greek adjective meaning anointed. Most often in the New Testament, the word is applied to Yahshua as an epithet, as a name the anointed one. And so we have Yahshua Christ, Jesus Christos, Jesus Christos, I'm sorry. Yet often, the term applies not to Yahshua, but to the children of Israel collectively as the anointed. It usually refers to Christ, but often it does not. This is perfectly clear in many contexts, although it is always mishandled by the King James Version. I'm going to quote some of those passages where it is perfectly clear that the word Christos applies not to Yahshua Christ, but to the group as a whole. Such an application is found outside of Paul's writings, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, a couple of times, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, in several of the Psalms, and in 1 John, 1 John 2.20 and 1 John 2.27. Here it shall be evident that such application of the word in Paul's writings, as Paul clearly intended it, illuminates many otherwise difficult passages. The following translations are from my own edition of Paul's epistles. I'll start with Romans 9. 1 through 6. 
This is important to grasp. I speak the truth among the anointed, the group of the woman's seed, the group of the chosen line. I lie not, my conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit. The grief for me is great, and distress incessant in my heart. For I have prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed, meaning from the group. If you read the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul had just said that nothing could separate us from Christ. Here Paul is talking about the group. For I have prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh. Paul's not concerned about spiritual sperm. He's concerned about his kinsmen according to the flesh, those who are Israelites. Whose is the position of sons? The position of sons wrongly translated adoption in the King James, Paul's telling us that it's only for Israelites, those who are Israelites, real Israelites, not spiritual sperm, his kinsmen according to the flesh. The disconnect in Judeo-Christianity is incredible. And the legislation, meaning the laws, and the covenants, and the promises, whose are the fathers? those people who belong to the fathers. Those promises which belong to the fathers. And of whom are the anointed? They are the collected group. The anointed in regards to the flesh. We see it again. It's not spiritual sperm. It's the anointed according to the flesh. Being overall blessed of Yahweh for the ages. Truly. Not, however, that the word of Yahweh has failed, since not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel. Paul goes on in that chapter to contrast Jacob and Esau, because half those people in Israel are Edomites, the accursed half. 1 Corinthians 1.13. Paul's not talking about Christ being divided. Paul's talking about sectarianism in Christianity. And he asks, have the anointed been divided? Paul's telling us that the body of Christ should not be divided. He's not talking about Christ himself. Have the anointed been divided? Has Paul been crucified on your half? Paul is saying that the people were choosing which apostle to follow. And some were saying, um, for Peter, and some were saying, um, for Paul. And Paul's telling them the anointed have not been divided, meaning the group, the chosen group of Abraham's descendants who were the recipients of the promises. Have the anointed been divided? Has Paul been crucified on your behalf? Or have you been immersed in the name of Paul? Of course, all three answers are no. 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul says, Although you may have had a myriad of tutors among the anointed, certainly not many fathers. 1 Corinthians 12.12, 12, 
For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body being many are one, so also the anointed, not the Christ, he's only an individual, the anointed, the body of Christians as a whole. 2 Corinthians one twenty one. Now he who is establishing us with you in the anointed and anoints us is Yahweh. Philippians one twenty one. For me to live anointed and to die is gain. Colossians one twenty four. Now I rejoice in these sufferings on your behalf. This is an important one because Paul's always criticized wrongly for this verse. And I substitute for those deficiencies of the afflictions of the anointed with my flesh on behalf of the body itself, which is the assembly. Paul's not saying that Christ didn't suffer enough. He's not talking about Christ. He's talking about his own trials and travails, which he had to undergo on behalf of the people. The anointed are the people, the body of Christ the children of Jacob, to whom the promises had come. They are the anointed. They are the only proper Christians. Colossians one twenty-seven. To whom Yahweh did wish to make known what the riches of the honor of this mystery are among the nations, which is the expectation of honor anointed in you. The word is simply an adjective. It doesn't say Christ in you, as we see in the King James. This isn't a good one, because this is obvious. 1 Timothy 5, 11 and 12. But younger widows you must excuse, for when they behave wantonly towards the anointed, they desire to marry with judgment, because they have set aside that former assurance. Paul is talking not about women behaving wantonly towards Christ. He is risen and gone off into heaven, right? He's not there. The younger women are behaving wantonly towards the men in the group. They're behaving wantonly towards the anointed, towards the body, the people in the body of Christ, desiring to marry with judgment. Paul is telling Timothy not to accept young widows because they should probably go off and get married. Here's another place where it's obvious. Hebrews 11, 24 and 26. By faith, Moses, becoming full grown, refused to be called the son of the daughter of Pharaoh, which he had every, every ability to do, rather preferring to be mistreated with the people of Yahweh than to have the temporary rewards of error. Having esteemed the reproach of the anointed greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, since he had regard for the reward. Paul is not telling us that Christ was being reproached in the desert in captivity in Egypt. Christ wasn't there. Well, he was there as, as God. He, he was there overlooking, overseeing, and... and, and um, planning his delivery of the children of Israel out of there. But Christ wasn't there in a desert being reproached. The children of Israel were. The children of Israel are the anointed. 
as a collective group. Very simple. The anointed, the Christ, it can refer to Yahshua himself, and it usually does in the New Testament, but we see in context it often refers to the people of God as a group, as a collective group. The anointed is a group of the body of Christ, which is the children of Israel with Yahshua Christ as their head. Explained by Paul many times in 1 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. But speaking the truth with love, we may increase all things for he who is the head, the Christ, from whom all the body, the anointed as a group, is being joined together and is being reconciled through every stroke of assistance according to the operation of each single part in proportion. The growth of the body creates itself into a building in love. And so it may be evident that R.L. Harris, explaining the Hebrew word zerah, or seed, in Genesis 3.15, was right in stating that it described the whole line of descendants as a unit, as cited in the first part of this presentation. Yet the descendants of the serpent, who were in first century Judea represented by the Edomite Jews, they are also a line of descendants as a unit, down through Cain, Canaan, and Esau. And they are called Satan, the adversary, among other epithets, quite often in the New Testament. A careful study of all the turmoils of our history clearly reveals the persistent enmity, mutual hatred, between the seed or the offspring of the woman and the seed or the offspring of the serpent, which so often manifests itself quite clearly even to this day. In fact, this day more than any other day. Comparing the Ishmaelites, found in today's Arab races throughout the Middle East and the Mediterranean regions, with the Israelites, Paul states, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh had persecuted him according to the Spirit, so also now, and so it is ever since. With the understanding of these things, we may now venture to read Galatians 3.16 in context with the rest of the Bible. The following is again from my own edition of Paul's Letters. I will add some words in brackets only for illustrative purposes here. Now to Abraham the promises have been spoken, Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, and to his offspring, Isaac, Genesis 21:12, and Hebrews 11:9, Jacob, Genesis chapter 35. It does not say and to offsprings, plural as of many, and the word seed in Greek is plural there. As of many, which are Esau and the Edomites, Ishmael and the Ishmaelites, the sons of Keturah, among which are the Midianites, along with those of Jacob, that's Abraham's offsprings, as of many, there are several lines, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed, Jacob and the Israelites. Paul in Galatians 3.16 is using 
the word sperma in the plural and in the singular to make a point that it, it is not the many lines of Abraham's descendants whom the promises had been spoken, but only to one line of Abraham's descendants. That's all that Galatians 3.16 is about. It's real simple, and it's in context with all of Paul's letters and the entire Bible. Now, to Abraham, the promises had been spoken, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, as of many, but as of one, and to your offspring, which are anointed, the seed of the inheritance, the children of Israel, the others are excluded. Paul tells us they're excluded. He tells us explicitly that the Edomites are vessels of destruction. He tells us explicitly that the Ishmaelites are excluded. The children of Jacob are the heirs of the promise, not the children of Esau or Ishmael or anyone else. This is reinforced in Hebrews 6.17, where Paul says, by which Yahweh is more abundantly desiring to display to the heirs, plural, of the promise, the immutability of his will, mediated by an oath. And at Hebrews 9.15, and for this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that from death, resulting in redemption of the trans of the transgressions against the first covenant, those having been invited, portending Israelites only, as we are told in Jeremiah chapter 31, in which Paul quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, would receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Paul is telling us right here in Hebrews, Hebrews 9.15, if your ancestors were not a part of the first covenant, you have no part in the second covenant. Period. Paul knew well that many of the nations of the Oikumene, the inhabited world of his time, had descended from the Old Testament Israelites. These included the Romans. These included most of the Greek tribes, the Phoenicians of Iberia, and wherever else Phoenicians remained by this time, the Celts, the Scythians, the Parthians. Paul knew well that the Corinthians, being Dorian Greeks, were among those descendants. For this reason, he told them that our fathers were all under the cloud and all had passed through the sea. Where at Corinthians 10.1, 1 Corinthians 10.1, he's referring to the Exodus. It is of these Israelite nations who had all adopted pagan religions as the prophets explain again and again, that Paul speaks, and not of any Jews, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 20, where he wrote, On which account, my beloved ones, flee from idolatry. As to those who are prudent, I speak. You determine that which I say. The cup of eulogy which we bless, is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The wheat bread which we break, 
Is it not the fellowship of the body of Christ? Because one loaf, one body, we the many are. For we all partake from the one loaf. Behold, Israel down through the flesh. Israel according to the flesh are not those who are eating the sacrifices partners of the altar. What then do I say? That that which is a sacrifice to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? Rather, that whatever the nation sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now, I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. Here, Paul asserts, he affirms the history in the prophets. He calls Israel, Israel down through the flesh, Abraham's natural descendants through Jacob. Those same Genesis chapter 17 and Genesis 35, 10 to 12 nations. The nations that came from Abraham's loins, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4. Yahweh did not tell Abraham that he would make many nations his descendants, spiritual seed. He told Abraham that he would make his descendants many nations, natural seed. Paul knew exactly who they were. The nations, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the nations which were sacrificing to pagan idols are whom Paul referred to as Israel down through the flesh, or as the King James has it, Israel according to the flesh. And that cannot describe any of the first century Jews. If they were spiritual seed, these nations, then they would not have been Israel according to the flesh. They are not spiritual seed. They are natural seed. They are the real children of Israel Christian Israel identity is the only true Christianity. It's the only Christianity that believes the promises and the fulfillment of those promises as they were written in the language and what the words mean. We interpret the language first. And then we figure out what it means. Mainstream Judeo-Christians deceived by these walking devils in shoe leather. They think that they're told what it means, and then they twist the language to fit it. That is not good biblical interpretation. That's not good, bibl- that's not good interpretation of any language at any time. Theologians, commentators, and lexicographers such as Joseph Thayer and W.E. Vine would tear the promises of the inheritance out of the hands of the heirs and assign them to the mediator only, making the promises of Yahweh to be little but vanity. Then they inform, then they inform us that any beast who chooses to call himself a Christian may be a partaker somehow being some sort of spiritual seed, which is a figment of some usurper's imagination. Spiritual seed, 
doesn't necessitate the mention of loins. Spiritual seed doesn't come from somebody's loins. It comes from a fairy tale book. It comes from a Jew, some Jewish hocus pocus. The shame they should have for themselves. Yet an examination of scripture fully reveals that it is the work of these so-called professionals, which is true vanity. For it is clear that not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of the cosmos, but through righteousness of faith. Faith, the faith of Abraham, which Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, is the belief, Abraham believed God, that his seed would become many nations. For if they from of the law are heirs, those who take the law on themselves and claim to be heirs, which is what the Jews have done, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all the offspring. Not those calling themselves Abraham's children. God could raise up children to Abraham from stones. That would not make them heirs of the promise. That would not make them recipients of the blessings. And so the lies which Thayer tries to attribute to Paul flatteringly calling them genius, are refuted again and again by Paul's own writings. The seed of the promised inheritance, Genesis 17, are the same people today as they were a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, and as it was anticipated at the call of Abraham, four thousand years ago. The natural descendants of Abraham through the chosen line of Jacob. The 12 tribes of Israel, not any spiritual seed. That thought is absolutely absurd in the light of Scripture. Thank you for listening. I will be here Friday with Hosea chapter 12. I'll be here next week, Saturday, with an interesting conversation on universalism with Pastor Mark Downey. That should be fun. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.